Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us at this HC Insider Podcast live event hosted by Onyx Group, Onyx Capital. Um, we're talking today about the financialization of the oil markets and who really prices oil. A couple of housekeeping notes before I introduce the panel. Uh, we are going to be recording this for a podcast to be released in a, a couple of weeks or so. Um, however, we'll turn the mics off for a Q&A after we're done with the, with the main discussion. You'll also find on your seats, hopefully, a QR code to Slido. We will be asking some a couple of survey questions throughout the episode to keep things moving along and sharing the results. And they're already up there, as you can see, which, you know, we might as well walk off stage. But uh, <laughs> so um, without further ado, my name is Paul Chapman. I'm the host of the HC Insider podcast and managing partner of HC Group, a, a search and talent advisory firm in the commodities markets. Delighted to have Kurt Chapman, director of LevMet, Greg Newman, uh, founder and CEO of of Onyx Capital, and also take a moment to mention author of the, the World of Oil Derivatives, available at all good bookstores. Tor Svelland, CEO and founder of Svelland Capital. Saad Rahim, Chief Economist of Trafigura. And Savas Manousos, former head of trading at SEPSA. So we'll, we'll get started. So I guess before we get on to the current state of financialization in the markets, maybe Kurt, you can give us a, a bit of an overview of how the the markets have evolved over the last 10, 15 years and how we got to the, the current state. Paul, thank you. Um, I might even go back a little bit further than that. I started trading Brent in 1989 under the tutelage of uh, Colin Bryce, who's kind of in the back row. And uh, what's been interesting is uh, I've tried to, kind of try to identify uh, three or four circumstances or events that have led us from a a purely physically traded commodity into the world that we are in today. Uh, and the first thing that I can think of is that you've had this massive complexity in the, in the Brent market. And as it's uh, uh, evolved, uh, there's been different elements that have been added to it. And the first thing that we had was it was a 15-day market, as, as some of you may recollect, uh, just Brent and then Brent and Ninian. And in 2002, there was an expansion of the underlying Brent basket, and there was an extension of the uh, maturity from a 15-day to a 21-day. And then ultimately, that was extended further in 2012 to, uh, to 25 days, and in 2015 to month ahead or 30 days. And as you added that additional maturity to the benchmark, to the Brent complex, you added uh, the need to understand what the curve was. And the curve primarily was the CFD curve, which was a dated curve. And so instead of just looking at the physical traded in that 15-day window, you had to look at the physical that was traded in a 30-day window and all the components of that curve that were associated with it. So you had dated as a CFD, a financial instrument that took on a disproportionate importance to the formulation of the price. The second thing, uh, which may be a little bit more obvious, 
but and uh, but quite significant, and I'll explain why. Was the electron uh, the, the the moving of uh, the IPE, which became ICE, to an electronic contract, and then ultimately uh, CME went to an electronic contract. Electronic contract. So you can say to me, well, electronic that sounds more phys- uh, more financial in the first place, but what ICE did by going electronically in 2005 is it led to the Platts window moving in 2008 to the E-window. So you are posting bids and offers not just in financial instruments, not just in outright instruments, but also in physical instruments on on an electronic platform. And so that allowed uh, for the basis of the community to get more involved in Brent from a financial standpoint. The third thing, and I think the real kicker, was the global financial crisis in 08 and 09. And after 08 and 09, there was legislation, particularly in the U.S., uh, Dodd-Frank, that insisted that not only, were future, not only that futures had to be cleared, but any kind of OTC swaps that uh, different players were using, industry players, banks, needed to be put uh, into a depository so they could be monitored to make sure that they weren't being abused, to make sure there was an additional systemic risk in the overall financial and commodities uh, business. And then with 2012, both of the exchanges, ICE and NYMEX CME, started list- listing swaps as futures contracts. So before you could post a swap onto the, onto the exchange with, a, with a, a mechanism like EFS, now you could just trade them and they would be, uh, you know, they would be there right in front of you. And this opened the world, or uh, opened up the commodities world, the Brent world, to a lot of different other players. It was a space that was occupied by the major oil companies. It was a space occupied by the major trading companies. It was a space occupied by the major investment banks. And now, if you wanted to start trading whatever shop you were, you could get involved in, in these mechanisms. Not to say also that after the global financial crisis, interest rates went to zero and money was available. And then we saw a plethora of smaller financial players enter the market. One of them is sitting right next to me, (laughs) uh, originally at Mandara, and then started your own business uh, at Onyx. DV Trading is another. Uh, And so you had this introduction of these players who started providing liquidity in these financial instruments that were having a dramatic impact on how the benchmarks were actually pricing itself. And I'm just looking at this thing right here saying, what's more significant in modern trading, financial trade, or physical trade? And what I can tell you right now is that the Brent benchmark, which is globally the most important uh, oil benchmark and probably the most important commodities benchmark, is probably determined about 50% from a financial perspective, whether it's a dated curve or the outright price, and maybe 50% from a physical perspective, which is the differentials at which the different crude oils trade. Now, you guys are saying, I'm stealing the thunder, 58% financial <laughs> and 42 physical, but that, that doesn't surprise me. So we've gone completely from physical trade dominating to a, a, you know, a more balanced uh, scenario. And I think we're going to talk about, thanks for that, yeah. We're going to talk about what that means to the market. We're also going to talk about the 
different participants that are now in the space, and many of those are represented on this panel. Um, so, so taking what's up there on the screen, which is quite significant, I think, and probably what we're about to debate. Greg, can you sort of, what does it mean for the market to be so financialized? How, yeah. how has that changed the nature of trading and indeed ultimately pricing of oil? I think it makes Kurt a bit less happy to begin with. <laughs> Everybody has to adjust. Yeah. Um, can we get up the slide on, uh, yeah, so I think for me, this is where it starts, right? So everything Kurt's saying, obviously, completely agree with. 2012, 2013, when they started to list uh, all the swaps as futures on ICE exchange, but of course all the futures, I mean, it's just undeniable the growth. This is actually an internal study, and I put this in my book, and it's you know 850% greater um, around now, but that's just on ICE. So this is everything. I think it includes uh, Dalian even as well. And it's just been one way of quite clear, obvious uh, trend in both open interest and volume. And uh, that's it. I mean, the first thing is just, it's just about influence. I mean, that's the whole point of this discussion. You know, paper trading uh, 10 years ago um, was still comparable to the physical, and the physical hedging had a big influence. But as we've grown, you know, obviously the paper influence is more. And what does that mean? What's the paper made up of? And as Kurt's saying, you know, a lot of liquidity providers maybe, yes, but there's a lot of speculation, and the distribution between speculation and hedging is probably the key debate. Because if it's speculation, um, it can overwhelm any hedging. And it can just be a, a function of entirely whatever we want it to be. And I think that's where we are today. And a lot of it is collective sentiment. And that throws up how you, you, know, how you analyze markets, how they're moved, and, and you know, how do you influence and control it. You know, this is what OPEC wanted to know about not so long ago. How do, we, how do we evolve what we're doing into the financial markets? Trade houses have diminished influence, but you know, still doing very well, of course. But it's not like it was. Everything's changed, and it's it's still uh, it's going to continue to change, and it just needs adaption and evolution. We'll, but I'll we'll, probably stop there. But yeah. yeah, we'll we'll do it like the presidential debate. I feel sad <laughs> your name's been mentioned, so you get thirty minutes. <laughs> yeah. um, no, look, I think this is this is a, a great indicator of what what has happened, and I think where from where we said, you know. The introduction of new participants, it's good for liquidity, except now you've seen in the last couple, especially over the last year, where as positioning has dropped, it has created its own issues alongside that, right? And so there's, there's positive benefits, there's negative benefits, or negative impacts on this as well. Um, and you do get these, these feedback loops now, right, where this increased financialization then says, okay, well, what is really the fair value of oil, right, and, and in a sense? Uh, and for us, okay, for us as physical traders, we're hedging, so it's not, we're not as exposed, obviously, to that, to that outright price. But if you're then saying, well, we're expecting liquidity to be there, but at times where it's then not, because you get these cascading effects, uh, like we saw that last year, we, you know, we've continued to see that this year, um, then, it, then it does change the market quite a bit, right? Um, and the issue then really is also not just what's happening within this market, but something I always talk a lot about is, again, when you compare the value of, you know, copper market, for example, value-wise is about eight to ten billion dollars a day. Oil is eighty to hundred billion, and FX is eight trillion dollars a day. So, you know, when big macro funds are allocating in or out of, um, you know, their markets on FX on rates, they can swamp, you know, these other markets just given that that volume at times, right? Um, and so, again, coming back to what the actual physical market is telling you. How does that then, you know, set against what's happening on the, the financial side? Yeah. There is, Greg, I think you've got another slide. There is a sort of argument now that it's flipped so much that now the, finance and the financial market is almost dictating to the physical market how and when it should be 
managing its physical supplies. Is that a, a fair comment? Yeah, I think that's what I really tried to tackle in my book. Like, I appreciate, you know, things can still move logically, but when we talk about influence physical versus derivative, you can actually define exactly what that is. We were just talking about it downstairs. You know, ultimately, the flat price, the month one, you know, it's a function of the collective buying and selling, whereas the physical is physical negotiated to the derivative. So it's only ever a differential. And that differential is held together through storage on the downside, and we were debating the upside, whether it's you know, rates or whatever it is, people switching grades or whatever else. But that means you know, in normal markets, you can really say it's about $2.50 to $5 per barrel influence on the price. And if we all collectively decide to sell Brent, even though the price is strong, it's the physical differential that has to adjust. And only on expiry and settlement will you get that that push, that impact. Mm. So really, the market's behaving logically is because people buy into the same things, supply and demand modeling, etc. But to Saad's point, where it goes badly is if everyone is talking about the same thing and you get a binary event, like obviously Russia-Ukraine crisis was bullish, we had very strong fundamental indicators, yet the market still sold off. That is purely a function of liquidity and positioning, and it's been two one way. One thing I didn't mention just before, which I think might be worth adding, is when there's more paper volumes and there's certainly more hedging volumes, you're actually bringing more cash money into the paper market. And that's um, quite an interesting thing to discuss because there's more money being made and lost on the paper now than there was ever before. Mm -hmm. And I think that trend will continue and it kind of means that you kind of have to be in the paper market if you're a physical player now, otherwise you're essentially leaving some of the potential money on the table. Well, you can debate that, but that, that's something I thought I'd add. It's quite interesting. Yeah, I was just going to elaborate a little bit also on the, yeah. the negative, what kind of what we saw over the last year was when we had these massive price spikes, and not just in oil, but across other commodities as well, right? But then you start to see the margin requirements go up, <coughs> right? Which then results in actually fewer people participating. So then you get higher chance of another spike or up or, you know, a, a sharp drop. That again creates more volatility that exacerbates the issue a little bit. And you saw that again cascade throughout these markets last year, right? So that's why part of the reason I would argue that the positioning is so low right now. Yeah. Just before we sort of, I want to come back to that, but Savas, you've obviously built trading teams over the last 20 years or so. Like, what is it, how does that, the, the, the team you need to build today, the skill sets you need, and the, the sort of the types of tools are needed to capture this positioning risk and so forth? I mean, that must be quite a dramatic change. Yeah, I mean, if you, if, if I kind of start back where, where Kurt was, I mean, when I started trading, you know, an arbitrage would be open on the screen for three or four days. I mean, it was long enough to, to lock in both legs. It was long enough to lock in your freight. It was locking to, to put everything in there. Yeah, you know, now though, those things are there if they ever open at all. And if they do, it's for, it's for a, few, a few seconds or, or a minute at the most. Um, and I think, therefore, the, the skills that you're building within a team are less about calling flat price but more about calling sentiment, having the discipline for how you enter and exit positions, being really deliberate about how you scale in and scale out, um, the checks and balances you have from a positive perspective, because you know, one, of, one of the things you always watch for is, is, is a, does a trader have the ability to, to come to the, to the desk every day as if they were starting with a blank sheet of paper and say, are, are the positions that I've got on the ones that I would establish today, or are they the ones that I'm inheriting from where I had yesterday? And how do you stop yourself getting married to something just because uh, it's, it, it's what you're there? Um, I think it's, for me, I think it's, 
the, the, the holding period of futures and swaps now is so low in comparison to where it was that the actual fundamental of looking at where stocks are because you're going to hold a position for three or six months is kind of not relevant so much and therefore it is about where do I think the diff's going to go or the, or the, or the particular spread over the next few days or, or the next week or so. And so it's a different, it's a different type of trading. I think it's, it's, it's always with an eye to a fundamental of is there a headline or is there something that's going to bring a shock. But actually it's about the management of, of money and position and the margin. And certainly if, you build, if, you're, if you're an asset company, if you're a refiner, you know, you're, you're buying a commodity typically to make five to seven dollars per barrel refining margin has been a bit more the last couple of years but as a percentage of the commodity you're trading you're trading on very tiny margins and therefore your ability to either completely blow that out of the water or get super normal returns because you're calling flat price aren't really the risk game that you're in so it's almost a team that looks at the fundamentals to say am i bullish or bearish but isn't trying to call where do I think the yeah. price is going to be next week. Doesn't that make it even more important to hedge or to be transacting in paper? Mm -hmm. Because yep. the margins are so small. Yeah. Yep. But I, that's what I was saying. So another, it's not necessarily financialization to blame. It's one-way positioning as well. So last year. So if you're not hedging and you're a producer, you're not providing the sell-side liquidity that would have been there. So you exacerbate these moves right. most on the up. And then when they come in, sorry, when the price sells off and people are stopping out, Producers are effectively stopping out as well by rushing into hedge. So a lack of hedging is actually a bad thing. And you can't really blame financialization. It's more blaming the lack of or activity by hedges. And I, I think the, what's happening in the next five years, I guess we'll talk about it a bit more in a, in a sec, but more trade houses joining, more people hedging is good for this, right? Good, good liquidity is what we want, two-sided two liquidity. But it's not just about hedging, right? It's about leverage. Right. And, the, and the whole point about the financial market, and that's why the traditional trading houses who were involved in physical or in paper markets, is because they can get more bang for their buck. Because yeah. there's only so much physical, and you, and you see it in your last chart, which is how much more financial instrument liquidity there, there is relative to how many cargoes of Nigerian you can buy. Mm. Let's, let's, can we put the, uh, the, the survey back up just to see the results? And then Tor, as the, as the representative of the hedge funds here, is, is that a, it's now 60%. Is that something you agree with? What's your take? I would expect it to be even uh, a higher on the financial. Uh, you know, if you look at, you know, who is, the, who is participating on a daily basis, in, particularly in the Brent market. So, you know, you start with the, the fiscal market, and then you have the, the really professional, which is Trafigura and, and, and the oil majors, etc. And they have their purpose of using uh, the market. Then uh, you have the, a kind of a layer with uh, uh, guys like us, you know, the hedge fund, um, who trades flat price spreads, etc. Then you have the, the other products out there, like the USO, you have ETFs, and they all have a quite huge impact on a daily basis on, the, on that particular flow. And then when that is, this is derivatives on derivatives mm. and it's all leverage. Mm. And that's what uh, uh, can you know, cause these kind of uh, massive moves. Like if you go back uh, two years ago, we had like a drop from $82 to 66. Uh, human traders won't create a seven 
uh, standard deviation move. But uh, the financial world, like the, um, the CTAs and others, they, they can create it because they don't care. They find a trend and they trade it. So like uh, as Saad was mentioning on the, on the volatility that we had after the Russia-Ukraine, so if you use a VAR model <coughs> with that volatility and you, you stick to the VAR model, you have to reduce the position with literally 75%. And that took out a lot of liquidity and then it was a trend and the trend follows was then, you know, killing it. Yeah. So it's quite complex with the, how to read the market in, in today's market. You can follow the fiscal, but you kind of have to understand how it all works with yeah. all these players. Like you, USO, if they change the contract, which they do all, you know, several times recently, but who has in this room read the contract on USO? Most likely no one except you know, one of my team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it's, just, it's getting quite complicated. And, and you said actually offline that almost the, the scale of money coming in is too big for the oil markets. Um, let's stay, because can we put the second survey up, please? Because um, Savas, you mentioned something interesting, which is essentially traders, for the most part, are talking about relative value, irrespective of the, the price. But a recruiter like me looks at the price of oil as as much of the world and many contracts around the world are impacted by that flat price. <laughs> oh, you know, and, and there are obviously, you know, outside of the physical world, let's talk about it. Saad, you know, what, what, what's your response to this rapidly changing uh, survey? <laughs> and we should say for the listeners in the future that right now traders are getting 70% and OPEX only at 25%, but I think that's going to rapidly change. But Saad, maybe you can... Uh, Give us your take. Well, I, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be a typical economist and say it depends. <laughs> no, but it really, actually, I think it depends on your, your time frame, really, right? So you can see intraday what happens, right? And so many times it'll, it will be the dollar move, right, that, that drives flat price. Nothing has changed in the fundamental market. Nothing has changed in the physical market. Oil can be down a dollar, two dollars, just because of what's happened around rates, dollar, et cetera, right? So... That has, a, that has a particular impact. Over the longer term, though, fundamentals, I think, do matter right now. Do they matter more or not? It depends on the regime you're in. But again, if OPEC you know, comes out and says, oh, we're cutting another 2 million barrels a day, that will have an influence on flat price, right? Or we're adding back the barrels. So it, it does depend. Um, you know, interest rates is an interesting one because, again, it can have intraday impacts, but they can also have impacts on, over the longer term cost of carry, but also eventually in the long run, you know, in terms of new investments, cost of capital as well, right? So I, it's hard to say that it's any one of these things. Um, and so again, that's why I would say it depends on kind of what time frame we're looking at. Uh, I would say traders, it depends again, which traders, because I would say as physical traders, we have no influence on, on Brent flat price, right? But if, it, if it's financial, then it seems to be that somewhere you can see moves being driven one way or the other um, in, in that sense. So I still think ultimately the fundamentals will tell, the fundamentals matter, but you can go through periods where there is this, the, the disconnect. So physical traders have no impact on flat price? Well, we, you know, we just move oil around. Yeah. Kurt? <laughs> you, know, I, you know, when you look at, <clears throat> when you look at the trade, I, I, think, uh, I think the trade ceded the absolute price setting uh, to the larger forces a long time ago. Uh, you know, the macro hedge funds probably have much larger position, and or you can you can comment on that. 
than, than any of the physical trading shops or any of the banks. We look at things on a relative value basis. So it's this month versus the next month, or it's this month in Brent versus that month in Dubai or WTI. Uh, so uh, I kind of agree <coughs> that OPEC probably drives drives the price more than anybody else, and not only OPEC, but the Saudis, but that's pretty pertinent right now when they've taken a million barrels a day off the market every month, so. Yeah. Uh, Greg? Uh, this is a bit facetious, but I think it always comes down to the traders in the sense that the, the price is the price, the Brent flat price is the price of the collective positioning. Your, risk, your net risk capacity, how much can you buy, how much can you sell, it's gonna gravitate to wherever the liquidity is balanced. And so that's what influences Brent flat price. However, undeniably, OPEC have a big uh, say on sentiment. And it's, but again, we've seen this year so many interesting things. The market wasn't believing in OPEC at the beginning of the year, even though there was less supply. There was lots of things going on, and it was obviously a game of influence and a uh, game of poker. And ultimately, OPEC have got themselves back into the driving seat. Um, and it's fascinating. I didn't think they would be able to do it personally, but I think they showed how willing how far they were willing to go, and I think it's very believable. And when you're getting these fundamental signals back again, you slowly brought um, some confidence back into the market to be long. And every stagnation we've had on the way up to what we are, what we are now, you know, 80 to 94, 95, it made sense. People were worried about it being a risky thing being long because it wasn't working every time, and they weren't really believing that OPEC would have the main influence. But I think they're back in the driving seat again. So this is like every other game in town, you know, advertising, it's all about influencers. You know, this is the same thing. OPEC could get very skilled at influencing. Um, you know, myself and Saab, we, we were in Vienna, you know, OPEC wanted to talk about financial markets more and you debate it and it's, they want to know more. They want to, they want to evolve their strategy for influencing and yeah, it's, it's pretty, I can't deny, they're pretty effective at it, so. Tor, do, yeah. do, do, do CTAs care about marketing? Yes. <laughs> so uh, I think that this year, you know, we didn't manage to break at the 86, 88 level with several occasions and uh, we start sliding. Um, but I think that the price setters this year, besides, of course, OPEC by cutting, uh, has definitely been the macrophones. Uh, they have deep pockets and they have a tendency to look at, from a historical point of view, uh, how they trade. And uh, since, uh, you know, many outlets have been super bearish in China uh, for the right or wrong reasons, uh, I disagree, but that's besides the point, then, uh, then it's been this whole recession talk. It was an inflation to recession talk, and if you have recession, you should short Brent. Um, and if you look at the curve back in 2008, it was a flat curve, many years out at 140. This time, we have a steep accelerated curve, and you just can't compare it. But most people who, had, who made that call from their macro funds, they have not even looked at the curve back in 2008. So I think that's one of the reasons why we had quite massive shorts from the macro side. The CTAs, they found the, the trend and they've been piling in. Uh, I read those reports very carefully and we read quite a few of them. And uh, at some stage during this, uh, especially in Q2, I think they were almost maxed out on the short. So, um, and when they are constantly in the market and you see that you can see kind of a disconnection between the, the euro dollar uh, or the general dollar uh, strength weakness and on DAX and, and, and S&P, it's just, it trades just constantly bearish. And I think that uh, ended up, 
uh, you know, being in charge of the market till we saw OPEC coming in and making the cut and took like a, a stand in the fiscal market. You know, yep. uh, I'm not accepting this anymore. Literally, that's what OPEC did, and and they won because mm. they were 94. Because <laughs> I was going to add, actually, what I should have said on the interest rates part, right, was if you look over the last 18 months, what has been the driver of oil price actually, in a sense, has been the 210 spread, right? Because it is the proxy for recession fears, demand fears, growth angst, all the headlines that we see, even as we were seeing draws. As we're seeing. So it didn't matter if you had Russia sanctions, price cap, Iran deal, no Iran deal, OPEC cuts. People were going, we're in, we're in a recession, we're going into a recession. Now that you've started to disinvert a little bit, now you can then also say, actually now where the OPEC fundamentals really are starting to tell. So it wasn't that people weren't believing the OPEC cuts. It was, well, they don't matter if we're going in for this inevitable recession. And yet here we are with the U.S. growing 5 6% real maybe this quarter, right? So it's... Yeah. It's complex, though, isn't it? Because there's also... I mean, I'd be interested in this. Obviously, we've seen a wave of assets come under management attached to commodities, you know, the last three years. But with higher interest rates, with commodities, you know, off their, their peaks and volatility down, are we seeing that money, the sort of the... Well, I guess we come on to it, the fast money come out and... You know, is that a, how is that, is that happening and is that having an effect? Uh, if the, yeah, so the, the, the inflow to particularly the CTAs has been uh, uh, quite extreme because they did fairly well in 21 and then they did, uh, had a stellar in 22 and then they got a lot of money into this year. And, uh, you know, they're trading a lot of products, but their influence in the equity market, I think, is less but they are so big that they have a huge influence in the commodity space, where it's uh, alu, copper, uh, iron ore, uh, and, and particularly brands, and, and you know, the part in diesel as well. So just look at how could we be the biggest short interest in diesel just a few months ago. That was at the same level as March 2020, when we had a go-down shutdown. And that's trends. Yeah, and that, and that was the situation. And like, uh, and we were like uh, wondering, like, how, how, who is willing to take this risk when we actually are running into a shortage of diesel? So, what is the what fascinating me as a uh, human trader is that uh, CTAs and others they just look at numbers. They don't really understand how fragile we are on the supply side. Yeah. I think that's. Uh, potentially one of the reasons why they're trading the way they are. Yeah. Mm. And Savas, what's your take on, uh, on who's the, who has the most influence on, uh, on flat price? Um, I think I'm a little bit similar to Saad. I think it's over, it's over what period of time. I, I, I think the pecking order is the first that sets the price is globe, the global economy. At the end of the day, only, oil only gets produced because it has to be refined into something because we need it for aviation and gasoline and diesel. If the demand for that ultimately isn't there, the demand for crude oil ultimately isn't there. So I think global economics um, set the, the sentiment in terms of demand. Second order then I think is the producers. Um, and I think particularly OPEC. And even if you look over the last 10 years, you've had two great examples. I remember sitting in, in Syria week in 2014 when um, the, the, the Saudi oil minister, OPEC oil minister said, so if the US want a free market in terms of um, shale oil and, and, you know, right, we're turning on the taps and let's see where it goes. And you came down to 25 bucks within 12 months. Um, and you've seen the same more recently in terms of OPEC deciding that they're going to they're constrain it um, back up. 
because I think if you break down the, the volume of futures that get traded, the actual percentage of the open interests that's held by people who care what the absolute price is, is relatively low. I mean, it's some of the funds, but even arguably some of the funds are just doing it from a diversification perspective because they have certain percentages of different commodities and different asset classes. Um, you know, they would prefer that if they had a long position, it went up, but ultimately it's part of the overall consideration. Refiners don't really care because they're just doing it as a margin business. Most trading houses don't really care. Not many of them are, are trading absolute flat price. So the only people who, who, who ultimately are in it for where the flat price is, I think, are primarily OPEC. You know, even, even some of the big producers, Mexico, they're just doing it just to, to their hedging to set a budget level. Um, so, but, do, you know, do they influence where the price is next week and the volatility around that? No, probably not. But do they influence where the sentiment is and where the price will be over the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah, I think they're, yeah. they, along with demand, it's just they have a lot more, they're a cartel of a lot fewer number of people that they can choke the demand, the supply side in a way that only a global recession could choke the demand side. So it's much more easy for them to have an immediate impact than, than the global economy. Yeah. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. I mean, it does have a real-world impact, right? I mean, if you think about the number of contracts around the world that are tied in some format to the, the flat price, and it's just sort of interesting that the people generating that are more bothered about relative value and, and so forth. But, but Paul, well, it's also quite... Sorry. But it's also quite interesting. I mean, you're talking about impact of things like the Dodd-Frank. I mean... The, it, it, certainly, if you sit, in, you sit in the Western Hemisphere, it's actually very hard to trade flat price at scale because if you're too successful at it, you're going to get yourself under, uh, you know, under review for were well, you squeezing a market one way or the other. So actually, there's a, you know, there's a whole bunch of people who have no interest in, in and actually want to distance themselves from saying, I had any outright influence on where the absolute price of oil was whether it was to the upside or the downside. Hmm. But I just think what we're not saying is the retail community, retail trading community, because financialization speaks to many more participants. And of course, individually, they're tiny. But cumulatively, like you're talking about the USO fund and ETFs, and it's just growing that. And they're fast money. And they do care about the outright price. And they're leveraged, like Kurt was saying. And I think if they all rush in because of one thing or another, like you're saying, a macro sentiment, they, they seem to have a very big impact. And I think that... Why I feel very strongly about this is because oil is the last one. You know, FX does this, okay, that, like uh, Saab was saying, but what about the uh, cheap money leading to stock price rises and we're getting like the GameStop squeeze? And these are all like very non-fundamental moves that are driven by retail traders. So as financialization grows, you're giving more power to the masses if the masses choose to trade. But it's even more, the argument to what you're saying, Salas, is really interesting because if there's so few people who care what the outright price is, then that gives even more power to the retail community who are speculating. And, you know, we, I think all of us, we all take more ownership over our investing now. 
So, you know, we're all, we're all influencing the price by definition. And um, yeah. that's a super interesting part that I think will continue. No, no, I think that gets... Well, let, let's, let, well let's... We can hold that because we're now going to talk about participants and I continue that, that, that thread because I think it is really interesting. Could we bring up the, uh, the final or the next survey? <clears throat> and, I, you know, this is pointing to that. Who do, you, who do you most follow closely? Fund flows, physical traders, OPEC, inflation reports. And I guess talking about this juxtaposition of the physical market and, you know, the statements around that, but really these flows of money... Um, already moving. Um, Greg, what's your take on the uh, the live results as they come in? Yeah, I almost thought we shouldn't have put OPEC in there because I thought that was that's an obvious one. I think mm -hmm. everyone has to follow. You can't okay, we'll, dis okay. we'll discount. But OPEC. if we discount <laughs> them, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I should say for the listeners that OPEC and physical traders are battling it out at the top. Well, I, th I think it has to be fund flows because at least we're if we're talking about Brent price which is ultimately the outright price, the most influential on the outright price because of exactly what we were just talking about. And a fund can be an ETF and retail if we, if we pull that together. I think that's super interesting, apart from OPEC, of course. The physical traders, for me, you can only really use the CFTC report. And the, the shift and changing in those positions is, is rare. You know, it's, it happens every so often that it's big enough that you can say this is a material shift. Um, so you have to follow it closely, but undeniably, like the, the micro shifts assuming you're trading on a day-to-day -day basis, I think is all about fund flows, really. Fast money. Do you think that, uh, this is Fast quite money? interesting, uh, on the fiscal traders, I'm wondering uh, how you're following the fiscal traders. I think that's very that's difficult. difficult. <laughs> and by our research. <laughs> there you go. So, you know, it's just uh, to know what uh, they're doing on the floors in BP, Shell, uh, Exxon, etc., and, and Traff, Vitol, and, and Glencore, I think it's very, very hard. Um, but, you know... Um, the, the fund flows, um, you know, on the CTA reports, I think they're quite accurate. Uh, we've been able to trade around uh, that information. Um, and uh, if you follow them closely on, on, on specific levels, you know, it's literally down to the 88.87 kind of where they're triggering things. And we have seen this again and again. So I think that uh, I'm a little bit surprised that fund flows is uh, that low. Kurt? It's hard to say. I mean, I, I you know, I think it's, I think it's been covered. Um, you know, would you like to know what's going on in the physical market? How do, how do you gather information in the physical market? You call up your counterparty, right? If you're a physical trader, you call, you call up your counterparty who you're doing business with, and you say, you know, what do you think about it? Margins look pretty good. A uh, little less sour on the market, uh, and again, people leverage those positions into the paper markets, right? So there's a you get a, you get a kind of collective idea about what the we traditionally call the industry view of the market. Now it doesn't mean that they're always right. Usually, you get the best indication when you've just been to some of these meetings, like APEC, you've, as you've probably been, and there's a collective consensus that kind of uh, come, comes out of it about whether markets are are, are, are tight or not. Kurt, wouldn't you agree, though, when we're trading in the data Brent market, like you're saying, so you're trading, you're seeing what you're doing, you're seeing people that you're trading against, and it has such a big influence on the data Brent price, which therefore relates a little bit to Brent. No, sure, and when it was a purely an OTC market, you knew who the counterparties yeah. were. Now that it's less... Uh, well, you can no trade more financial, yeah. but Now that it's more financial, you can see what people are doing in the window because it's counterparty-specific, but you don't necessarily see it if it's a, 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 you know, if it's a future, right? 
Um, you know, we used to we used to uh, uh, look at the open interest by company yeah. of what what people would do both in the forward and the dated market to try to get an idea of just exactly what these CTA reports are, but for the industry. Yeah. So I would I would have been interested if this question had been asked four or five months ago where inflation reports would have been. Yeah. Back when inflation was running super hot, I think, again, people were looking at that going, well, what's the impact on rates? What's the impact on the economy? What's the impact then on demand, right? Um, I don't know if it would be the top one, but I would have said it would have been higher than 5% probably. Yeah. Just, I guess, looking forward, <clears throat> how do you think this chart would look in, I mean, it's a very hard question, I know, but in five years? I mean, I guess somewhat of your contention, Greg, is that actually... As more and more, as the markets become more financialized, more retail money can come into the space. You know, you've got presumably even more sophisticated algorithms and money flows and so forth. And and actually, that is, you know, that has increasingly become a a, a a tidal wave that you can't hold back. Essentially, um, so we look at the last slide. I guess is what you're inferring, or yes, yeah. yeah. If we can put that, pull up the last slide. Um, this was a really interesting study because uh, obviously there's been a manic volatility. 2020, 2022 as, as well. But if you get the standard deviations, average them out against the, the average prices for that year, and you do that across all products, and this is just swaps, to be fair. But swaps are the main kind of, they financialize the most, right? Modern futures has been a huge boom. And again, it's completely inversely correlated. The more swap market volume, the less volatile. So it's an interesting discussion because some, someone was saying um, just before, you know, people blame financialization for volatility. Um, and actually, I talk about it in my book, even the CFTC chairman a long time ago was referencing the onion market and how they proved that before and after the financial market for onions got banned, it's more volatile than when there was a financial market. It really is. It really does look like that. So if we're going to a more stable market, a more financialized market, we'll probably have a more stable market and a more functioning market. Um, so I think with many more, it seems like all the big majors out there who aren't uh, in paper are going to be in paper either very soon or planning to be. Mm. And that should have a great stabilizing impact on all the contracts. And remember, there's 650 plus contracts that are very much related to the physical. And when you talk about mapping physical trade houses, I understand that's hard, but actually in the swap market, because the liquidity providers especially, that's what we do, right? We're taking the other side of all these guys, and therefore we have the data. And the, the other slide, if you guys can go back to it, the one with the counterparty types. You know, what this very clearly shows is that, you know, from our, <coughs> from our data, it's obvious that the majors and funds and banks, they trade a lot as a proportion down the forward curve. But when it gets to pricing, it's absolutely dominated or much more dominated by trade houses who you know, ultimately hold the physical. And that's how, you, that's how you infer, like, what's really going on in the underlying fundamental market. And I think there's going to be a lot more of that. You know, people are going to be really thirsty for this data mm. because it's, it's really so important um, and I think it's a good thing that you can get more and more financialized in the specific contracts that relate to physical like these sort like the data brents you know you can you can come up with a contract for anything these days and that if that gets liquid then you therefore everyone has more information about where things are like I, I don't know if many people trade Merban contracts these days but at least it's a great figure to know where Merban versus Brenton which was a big part of our market you know when's the Merban arb open because we think people are going to buy at 40s now that's really transparent that's a huge advancement. In, in <coughs> I think, but I think the difference, and we talked about this, 
is when you look at those volatility numbers, and I was kind of surprised by it, and it is quite inversely correlated, you're looking at it from more of a differential basis. Because one of the things that nags me in the back of my mind is I say, so spring of 2020 and WTI goes negative. Why did that happen? Is that because of the GameStop phenomena? Is you, you were, people were in the USO contract and they didn't roll and they didn't understand that, uh, that there was a limited amount of storage on which the contract was based and at no price would you buy oil? Now, we all know that oil should not be negative. But at that particular location, it was negative. And why was it negative? Because there were too many people getting into the market from a financial standpoint who didn't understand, again, the physical and know how the specific contract worked and said, oh, I just want to go long oil, and this, this ETF is going to give me an opportunity to do so. So I take your point on the swaps market that we may be getting less volatility, but when you bring in more and more participants that have less and less knowledge about the underlying, are we getting less volatility on the absolute price? I don't know. It's one of, it's one of Traffic Euro's contentions or talking points, I guess, you know, your colleague Ben and so forth, that actually in the energy transition and the digitization we talk about in the podcast a lot, energy transition, deglobalization, digitization, all creating volatility. Ben was saying, you know, that we expect to see more spikes more often, which I say somewhat, you know, goes against the idea that financialization is going to, you know, help, well, hopefully financialization will support that, but I guess what's your take, Sarah? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's the thesis we've had quite publicly for some time that we, I think we're moving away from a world of commodity cycles to one of spikes. Right. And I think where we are in terms of shock absorbers that we used to have, whether it was inventories, whether it was spare capacity, refining capacity, you know, your ability to turn on shale very quickly. You had all of these shock absorbers in the system and you don't have those anymore. Right? Even the SPR, look what, where that is. You know, maybe it's not as important anymore, but all these things add up. And it's similar across a lot of these commodities, right? We can, you know, copper, wherever else as well. But that lack of investment really now for a decade that we have seen, right, makes it hard to then see how we don't end up in some of these spikes. And if you believe, you know, the projections for Q4 this year, you know, a couple million barrels a day deficit, depending on, on you know, who you look at, I mean, that adds up very quickly, right? And so you end up in these situations where, yeah, I think uh, you get these spikes and then that potentially gets exacerbated by people starting to chase that, right? Let's say tech has a bit of a wobble. All of a sudden, retail investors look around, hey, wait a minute, oil is at 100 bucks, or if it is, you know, then maybe that's a magic number and people say, well, let me get in there. And then what happens then, right? So, yeah. Well, we're sort of coming towards time and to do the Q&A. There's one final bit that we actually all discussed sitting around was talking about the talent piece of this. And actually, that's quite a stark change, isn't it? You're talking 15 years ago, 10 years ago, very much you know, being very schooled in the physical side of oil, and suddenly we're now talking about the financialization. It's a whole new series of lenses that are coming into play. You know, how is that changing talent? And I, mean, I assume, I mean, from our perspective as HC Group, the talent, talent in the commodities world is relatively short and not, much, not, not many new people are being made. I mean, it, it seems like that's also going to be another source of volatility with all these you know, trading and producer, well, producers and refiners wanting to build trading capabilities in a volatile world. I guess, Greg, maybe a tour you want to... Yeah, no, you're, you're spot on. It's, uh, it was almost like embarrassing working for an oil company a few years back, so here we are. Um, I think uh, the whole... Um, 
you know, it's always been like a, a demand story in the commodity space. And for the first time in my career since I started in 1989, it's actually a, a supply story. And uh, I think we're going to have a lot of shocks. And when we have the shocks, then the politician and a lot of others and more money will be available. But uh, this is going to be, we will have shocks the next three to five years. Yeah. And, um, and these shocks uh, will probably uh, be some kind of attention to the, the new generation. That they, uh, this, uh, the commodity market is actually quite cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, in the interest of time, let's move to our last Bonus, uh, bonus question, which I think will point to this. You can't, can't have the, uh, the star-studded crowd on stage that we do <laughs> without uh, getting some take on, uh, <laughs> on where oil prices are going. Oh? You, mean, you, mean December, you mean December contract, or do you mean December Well, calendar? no, I mean... Because that's two months early. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's December yes. 31st. End December of the year. 31st. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Just to be clear. Yeah. Just to be clear. Not, Saad, this seems like your... <laughs> well, if it was December contract, I would go 90 to 100, easy, but December end year, I'm not, I'm not so sure. Anyone want to take a stab, Savas? I mean, I think it's a, it, it's a good example of why liquidity um, and volatility don't need to contradict. I mean, because I, I agree with Greg that more retail investors brings, a more, brings more liquidity to the market but, but brings more stability, but I, but I think it doesn't remove the fact that you can still get quite volatile shocks. And there, I think you potentially have a slightly different set of factors that play into some other markets in terms of the amount of margin call that, that you can get on a specific day can introduce volatility if you're forced to close your position. And you say we saw that in, in LNG last year. So I think you can get both things can actually coexist. That mm. You can have a large amount of retail investors that on average dampens volatility and makes a more transparent market, but won't absent us from being exposed to specific events. Yeah. One piece, and I don't think we have the data to, to see it, but it would be interesting, I was kind of showing yesterday, there's an advert currently running on Bloomberg at the moment for an FX trading platform. And if you, if you kind of watch the advert itself, it's all about you know, how glamorous it is and how easy it is to make money and everything else. If you read the small print, it says 79.87% of retail investors lose money trading this platform. So I think there's, a, you know, there's, there's I, the, on the one hand, if you're an institutional and a professional investor, more and more retail money coming into the market is a good thing. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah more, more, more losers. Well, I should say for listeners, it's, Nine, between 19 and 100 is just winning with uh, over 100 bucks next. But thank you very much to the panel. I think it's been a really interesting discussion. More, probably more questions than, than answers, but really uh, interesting insight. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.